This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome back, all of you beautiful people, to Spicier Than Therapy, the podcast where we discuss polyamory, ethical non-monogamy, communication, neurodiversity, kink, and all of the wonderful things that we think go into making a healthy, loving relationship. Absolutely. Hey, twin, what are we going to do today? The same thing we do every day, my love. Try to take over the interwebs. Yes, indeed. Uh, we do it every week uh, with, you know, moderate degrees of success. But this week on our podcast, we have a special guest helping us to take over the interwebs. So we have Heidi Savelle with us today. She is a therapist, coach, and educator who has been working with polyamorous people for almost a decade. And we are very, very excited to have her here. Uh, if you've listened to our previous episodes, you know we've done multiple part series on polyamory. And that was kind of, you know, your introduction to what polyamory is, what ethical non-monogamy is, and the way in which we personally practice polyamory. Exactly. Yeah. And we know that relationships are a case-by-case basis. So we want to make sure that you guys don't forget that we will be broadly speaking in generalized terms today. So please keep that in mind. Everybody's relationship is different, no matter how many there are in this queue. Um, but we'll, so we'll be speaking kind of overall and generality. So if you have any more questions or want to learn more about polyamory and ethical non-monogamy, please feel free to check out Heidi Savelle. And before we go any further, I do want to remind you guys that this is not a replacement for actual medical therapy or medical care. We are speaking specifically from our own opinions, and these should not be taken as medical advice or medical counseling, any sort of that, uh, any anything like that. We are speaking solely from experience, our own opinions, our own thoughts. And if you do need help, we will be linking resources in our uh, podcast description for you if you need help or would like to seek out uh, actual professional care. Wonderful point. And Heidi, thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. This is definitely a, a shift from my normal podcast guesting. I usually um, am a guest on podcasts where people are learning about polyamory for the very first time. So I'm super excited to be able to go into more depth around it all with you, you two here. Absolutely. We're we're very excited to have you here. And we first met Heidi on TikTok. We saw some of her TikTok videos. And since both Twin and I have been polyamorous for a number of years and have had multiple relationships, some healthy, some unhealthy, I was like, oh my gosh, here is a TikTok content creator that knows what they're talking about. And they're a therapist and they're a life coach. These are all of the things that we love. They're talking about... Um, polyamory in a much more in-depth way than just kind of some of the stuff that we had seen before, which is what is polyamory? What is ethical non-monogamy? And everybody needs to start somewhere, but this was great. All right, Heidi. So you said you've been on podcasting before and that you've obviously been doing this for a while. So why don't you tell us a little bit about you, how you got started with, you know, coaching specifically and what got you interested in ethical non-monogamy? 
Yes, absolutely. Ooh, there's like so many origin stories in here. There's like my personal polyamory origin story. There's my like professional origin story. Where should I start? Let's start with your personal, because I'm assuming that tied into why you got into it professionally. Very good point. Let's start there. So, um, gosh, more than 10 years ago, I was um, in a relationship and we were talking about potentially getting married. And so we were having all the conversations about like, what does marriage mean? What are our values? And I had never even considered non-monogamy before, but in our discussions, we both kind of realized like, huh, monogamy isn't very high on the list in terms of like values when it comes to like being in a healthy relationship. That's interesting. So from there, we decided to kind of explore what that meant for us. Um, we started, as I think many people do, with swinging, dipping our toe into, you know, sex clubs, sort of lifestyle type stuff. And as we did that, what I came to realize was that for me, I recognize swinging is a, a lovely recreational activity that many people love. For me, I was finding that um, it wasn't as satisfying for me to be engaging sexually with people who I didn't have a deep emotional connection with. And so I was like, huh, what else is there out here? This is a big world. I'm just, I, what I always said was like, it's like I've been going to the same restaurant all these years and opening up the menu. And I just discovered there's like a little fold out flap and there's a whole nother section. So what else is on this menu? So I through there discovered you know, the broad category of open relationships and more specifically polyamory. I started going to discussion groups, support groups, reading books, and started, we started, you know, dating and opening up and becoming polyamorous. And through that process, I learned so much about myself, so much about what I want and don't want in relationships. And interestingly, um, the partner I was with at the time and I, we ended up going our separate ways as I just learned and explored more about who I am and what I want. It was a real coming into my own kind of experience. And so, but even though that relationship didn't last, the the practice of polyamory really did last for me. It was something I held on to. Yeah. I feel like that's very relatable for a lot of people who get into non-monogamy. I mean, I, I don't know if you listened to our podcast before, I had a very early introduction to it through a comic book series. And then like my teenage years were spent exploring. And then, and then it was like later on, I realized like, oh wait, people don't do this like on purpose. Why, 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 what are you doing? Why are you depriving yourself? And that was always just kind of my mindset. And then I spent my twenties trying to fit into monogamy and realizing it is not going to happen for me. And so then I kind of explored and I feel like that's, you know, I had such an opposite uh, experience with it in that regard from a lot of people. So I always love hearing how people get into it and, and, and realizing like, oh, this, this is, this works. I like this. And totally. my story is actually very similar to yours, Heidi. Started in the swinging world, then kind of more and more explored other types and other um, perspectives in ethical non-monogamy in different ways to practice that. But I absolutely love your menu uh, metaphor there, and I'm going to be using that from now on. Yes, I love that. Please do. Okay, so now we know a little bit about your personal experience. So what about all of that experience led you into wanting to become a life coach and therapist for people within the non-monogamous crowd. Yeah. So 
It first started by accident um, insofar as I was a therapist who was like, um, you know, well-known within my little community and, you know, folks who knew me knew I was a therapist. And I at first was like, I don't want to work with polyamorous people specifically because like, this isn't that big of a community. I would like to date and exist and live in this community. And there's some complications that come up around boundaries when suddenly folks in the community are my clients. So yeah, it's kind of hard to sleep with somebody while you're treating them. I feel like that's a, that's a breach somewhere, right? Definitely, definitely a pretty major ethical violation there. Yeah. So I was pretty resistant to the idea of working with polyamorous couples, not because I, I didn't want to help them, but because of that, that issue. But, you know, word of mouth, I just kept, you know, people kept hearing about me and knowing that I was a therapist and that I was in the community. And so I just kept ending up with um, polyamorous folks in my office and working with them. And, and I navigated it, you know, I, I've managed to maintain boundaries, but at times it's been tricky. Um, and so th there were two main reasons why I really wanted to transition from working with polyamory folks in a therapy setting to doing it in a coaching setting. The first reason was kind of what I've already mentioned. Like I, I wanted to be able to work with people more broadly, not just in my community. And so through coaching, I can reach a lot more folks um, and I can do more targeted work that's not around mental health per se, but is around building healthy relationships, building the skills that are specifically going to support you in having these healthy, healthy relationship dynamics as you explore polyamory. And then the second reason was in my therapy practice, what I was finding was that I was talking to folks around the same concepts over and over again, having the same conversations. And I was like, gosh, I really want to get all these people together. I want, I want to be able to like teach in a group setting so people can both learn that they're not the only ones struggling with these things. They can build a community of support and I can reach more people. And so that is why I you know, in the end decided to go down the coaching route and created my steadier polywobbles group for folks to really be able to come together and, and build that, like just that kind of yummy synergy that happens when everyone's like learning together, bouncing ideas off each other, you know, being able to give each other compassion and being like, oh my God, you feel that way too. Wow. I didn't know it wasn't just me. I love, by the way, the name of that group, that polywobbles. That is amazing. That's so cute. Thank you. I had so much fun coming up with that name. It was like one of those shower ideas where I was like in the shower and like, oh my God, polywobbles, steadier polywobbles. That's what it's going to be. And it was funny because um, when I was early on in the process and really struggling, my partner and I termed it the polywobbles. And so we'd talk about like, oh, I'm feeling kind of wobbly today. Can we have a check-in? And so it just kind of carried over. That's really cute. Yeah, I absolutely love the idea and the concept of working with multiple polyamorous people or couples or polycules in a group setting. Uh, I know that I myself am a part of a bunch of like Facebook groups where everybody comes together and just kind of bounces ideas off of each other, provides that community support. And I know at least on the mental health side, there is a lot of support for that group setting modality in, you know, 
helping people to deal with some of those issues if they share uh, certain commonalities. And I would think that a group setting for polyamorous folks, whether it be virtual, like we're doing now, or in person, thanks COVID, uh, would be super helpful. So we, we might have to, uh, to, to join that group. <laughs> So on that note, Heidi, I just wanted to ask, you know, I know we, we didn't have this queued up, but like now that we're talking, I'm curious, do you find it, um, would you consider it sort of, um, maybe not necessary, but definitely obviously like helpful for somebody who is interested in becoming a life coach, uh, particularly in this sort of like relationship at all sphere, would you say that it's more helpful or necessary or whatever to have a background specifically in therapy? Oh gosh. Um, there's probably a lot of really strong opinions out there about this. I, I don't know. I mean, I think for me, it is tremendously helpful. All of my training, all of my um, experience just in the therapy room with clients has deeply informed my understanding of this work and blending that with my um, personal experience of having gone through some very wobbly years in my own uh, polyamory experience. It's really helpful to me. I don't think that, um, I don't think it's necessary to have the the therapy background, but I also think it probably depends on what kind of coaching you're, do, you're doing because there's so many different kinds out there. Yeah, absolutely fair. That was kind of what I was thinking too. I was just curious about what your take would be on it. And there's something to be said for peer support groups, having been in a couple myself, you know, when I was younger, but I've always appreciated my own experience, having someone that has more of a specialized background help to guide and lead those peer support groups so that, you know, as we all have a tendency tendency to do, we don't spiral down into a rabbit hole that we don't necessarily need to go down. Yes, totally. That's so well said. Awesome. So on that note, what would you say, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure being, you know, relationship therapist and coach and having worked with all of these couples and, you know, polycules or what have you, um, I'm sure you're familiar with like the Gottmans and things like that. I love them, by the way. I'm a, I'm a big fan. I talk about them all the time. He's probably sick of hearing about them. Um, but I would want to, I wanted to know, like, what would you say or what would you consider like some indicators for success within like a poly romantic or ethically non-monogamous sort of relationship and which, you know, which sort of like methodology would you say is probably like your preferred? Yeah. So I also really love the Gottmans and their work. Um, I also really like Sue jo Sue Johnson. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with her. She does emotionally focused therapy, which is um, based on attachment theory. Um, so her stuff is really good. And giant caveat, they both have some pretty negative stuff to say about non-monogamy. Um, yeah, I, that was one of the things that like, as much as I love the Gottmans, that was a big like, oh, but guys, you, you almost had me. We were almost there. Yeah, I mean, I think especially with um, both with the Gottmans and with Sue Johnson and, and anything that's attachment based, there's a lot of um, compulsory monogamy baked into the work. And the foundation of a lot of it is around mononormativity and the idea that um, 
being monogamous is kind of the best indicator of maturity and health and relationship success. So while I love both of their work and I borrow from it often, I think that it needs to be taken with a grain of salt. And some of the pieces need to really be critically examined because they're working from a different paradigm. Right. Well, I think that's like a good rule of thumb with pretty much any sort of like school of psychology. I mean, I know just the other day when we did, we were kind of doing like a procrastination podcast and do it with a live chat. And one of the gals, one of our frequent flyers was in there talking about how much she loves Carl Jung. And I'm like, ah, about that. <laughs> so it's just, I mean, it's one of the, one of those sort of like, uh, uh, take it what's the what's the thing take the good with the bad sort of deal and you just have to pick and choose and see what works best and in the healthiest way for you and what you're going through right yeah absolutely um and you know and that being said i do think that there's a lot of the gottman's work around building healthy relationships um building trust building communication navigating conflict that is incredibly helpful. And same with Sue Johnson's work around attachment. I think a lot of the work that I do um, in, with individuals and in the Steadier Polywobbles group is around learning about dysregulation of the nervous system, what happens to our brain, what happens to our ability to communicate, and what happens to our ability to be good to our partners or even think rationally in those moments. And so really refining our understanding of that is so key and learning to like bring the nervous system back down before we try to engage in conflict and conflict management with partners. I absolutely love that. And I appreciate that you went there when, when twin and I first met, we actually did a lot of those sorts of conversations specifically around navigating attachment styles, navigating um, what it looks like to communicate when we're under stress, when we're under pressure. And it's funny, we, we tell our friends just anecdotally the first like 10 days that we really started talking in depth, we would talk five to nine hours per day and we're both still working regular jobs, but we don't, deep into all of those topics that you mentioned. And we knew it was going to be a trial by fire. We're either really going to get along well and try to form or forge a healthy foundation, or we're going to learn that we do not work together. Well, that was one of the first questions I asked you was, and, and this was something that like me and my I'm so over men kind of phase that I was in at the time, especially I mean, my dating profile on like the apps and stuff literally said like, here are my political views. Um, if you don't know your attachment style, don't message me. If you don't know, you know, like I, I did not even, I don't even fuck with people that don't understand their attachment style, much less what it is. Like, I don't care about what your Myers-Briggs personality says because it was a fake anyway. I want to know what's your attachment style and have you gone to therapy, sir? Yeah, that, that's a great point, Twit. And it's one of those things that we knew because both of us are such big fans of therapy. I mean, we have both had very, very unhealthy relationships, very unhealthy relationships with other partners and with our own selves in the past. And we've both been in therapy for years, learning how to not only understand ourselves better, set healthy boundaries, but regulate our own emotions in a much more productive way than we used to do in the past. That when we first met, it was like, you know, unless you're getting therapy and unless you're on the same journey and at least in the same area of that journey that I am, I'm not sure that we're going to be compatible. We may still like each other. We may still get along great, but that level of compatibility had to be there for us. Um, 
And actually, this this question isn't on our sheet, but it leads me down this road to ask you, Heidi. One of the things that we're always talking about when we are um, having discussions with other potential partners or you know romantic involvements and things like that is talking about their past history with therapy and talking about their own emotional growth and how they handle problems, how they handle strife and miscommunication. Do you find that to be one of the more frequent topics that comes up in some of these groups that you're leading? I love that question. Yeah, I think that is such an important piece of, of the journey and of the process. And I do, we spend um, one of our eight weeks, we spend pretty much the whole week talking about how to find new partners, what to look for in new partners. And I think the things you're talking about are so key. Where are they in their self-awareness journey and their mental health journey? What do they know about their own attachment style, their conflict style, their um, ways of communicating? And, and also, you know, looking at is the, are their philosophies and beliefs about love, about relationships, and about polyamory compatible with yours? Because it's a wide, you know, it's a big tent. There's a lot of us in there and we don't all carry the same values or believe the same things. And I think that's such an important thing to, to really be vetting early on and to be having these conversations. And I, I love hearing that the two of you have those. I think that's really amazing. No, that's such a wonderful answer. And I love that. It's, it's one of those things where when we started, we were surprised because there are so many different ways to practice polyamory and ethical non-monogamy. Um, in my previous anecdotal experience in relationships, there wasn't really that level of compatibility. Like we were, you know, all polyamorous, but the way in which we practiced and expressed that wasn't quite on the same level. And so for me personally, going through that journey, finding somebody that had a compatible view, uh, not only on polyamory itself, but in how they navigate their own relationships was kind of rare. And so when Twin and I met, figuring out that we were damn near on the same plane on almost everything kind of blew my mind a little bit at the beginning. Right. Like, I feel like it's one of those things that, you know, people, no matter how long they've been in the scene, whether they're brand new or they've been in it for 15, 20 some odd years, a lot of people seem to forget. And, and you could probably speak to this in your experience, Heidi, is like, not all poly is created equal. Not all poly is the same kind of poly. And like so many people, I think, get it in their head that theirs is the right way to poly or non-monogamy or however you want to call it. We'll say poly just for the sake of it. But, um, you know, and and that's not always the case. Yeah, I I love that. And I think that's so true. And I find that so many people come with really strong judgments and it's like you can have your own way of doing it and your way is probably very valid but when we start getting into this like well my way is the right way and your way is bad or wrong or unethical it's like that that really rubs me the wrong way and and I feel like you know a lot of the work I'm doing with folks too is around bringing curiosity and compassion into it and when we have those things you know, there's, there's less room for judgment because judgment shuts us down. It takes away our curiosity and it really removes us from compassion. And so, you know, I, I am really cautious when I hear people using a lot of shoulds or, you know, attacking other people's ways of doing things. And, and again, also that leads to shame, which further shuts people down and really blocks us from being able to grow. Right. Exactly. I know. I feel like, um, we spend a lot of time, like sort of, um, 
especially with our, our newer poly people that discover us on TikTok and they're like, oh, you guys are cool and you're a good source of information. And it's like, yeah, we're a source of information. We're not the only source of information and we can only speak to our experiences, what was good, what was bad, what have you. But like that doesn't make us the authority. And I honestly steer clear of anyone that does say they are, you know, I mean, we're very big believers that, you know, unless somebody is actively being hurt within the scenario, do you? Yeah. I mean, I, I love that approach and I totally agree. And, you know, there are, I do in some of my content talk about dynamics that I find to be problematic, but I won't say don't ever do this. This is wrong. What I will say is I've seen this be really problematic and here are the reasons why consider that as you make your own choices around this. So then do you ever feel like, especially in the groups, right? Do you ever feel like you're spending, you know, a significant amount of time, like sort of um, deprogramming people from like the negative? I mean, I, I hate to use that word, but that's just what comes to mind. But, you know, like um, working them out of like those old mentalities and such. Yeah, we, um, this is kind of like what you're asking, but it's slightly different, but we do spend a whole week on mindset. And what we specifically look at is monogamy mindset and how to unpack and unlearn monogamy mindset. But we have another week where we talk about um, like cognitive rigidity. And there, when we talk about cognitive rigidity, that's where we start to talk about like the judgment piece and labeling things as good or bad and how that's problematic and, and how to move away from that. Absolutely, because we are all unique and complex individuals. And so, you know, saying one thing works for everyone or this is the way polyamory should work, back to your should, is always problematic. And we actually talk a lot in our podcast and on TikTok about the overlap between ethical non-monogamy and kink and BDSM. And a lot of those concepts in both worlds overlap in terms of it being customizable and unique to the dynamic of the people that are in it. And communication is absolutely always the number one thing we're discussing when we're talking about either one of those worlds. And this, this conversation actually leads me into our next question. It's a perfect segue. This is the one I've been most excited to ask you about and talk to you about, which is complex polycool relationships. So, you know, for those of us with experience, you know, it's, it's going to look differently depending on how we do it. But some of the ones that I have seen be the most difficult for the people within them to navigate are quads and triads. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask you about your experience or some of the, the ones, some of the polycules that you've seen work well for quads and triads. I have the healthiest poly relationship I've ever seen was a quad and it just blew my mind how well it worked. Yeah. So I agree with you that I think it is such a complex, um, relationship structure and so many ways it can go wrong. And, and what's ironic to me is how many people are so eager to start their polyamory journey with quads and triads. And it's like, oh no, no, that's like grad level stuff. That is not, that is not 101. That's like PhD level. Like do, please do not start there. I can see why it's tempting to start there and why people think it might be easier, but like please do not do that. Do yourself and everyone else a favor. Like you are signing up for so much more heartbreak and, and harm than you need to. 
Well, I have to wonder, like, how many people th- get into, you know, jump into quad relationships thinking that it's just like, oh, it's just like swinging, you know, we'll just go over on game night. <laughs> and then next thing they know, there's like hurt feelings and thrown furniture and stuff, you know, <laughs> hopefully not that bad, but still. Yes, exactly. And I think that um, I'm, I'm going to answer your question here in a bit of a roundabout way, because I think um, what Twen just said made me think of something else, which is this idea that when some people enter polyamory, I think the thinking at first is like, oh, it's just like monogamy, but with more partners. And that kind of thinking gets folks in trouble. And that is absolutely not true because what we need to do is completely divest from the monogamy paradigm in which it's like two people, they are the most special, everyone else is less than, and you know, this, this dyad gets prioritized above all else and everything else is like disposable or expendable. And all of the the pieces that come with monogamy around one person should meet all your needs and, you know, having other close relationships is suspicious or suspect or threatens in some way that relationship. And so like, I think in order to really enter into a triad or quad, a lot of that monogamy mindset and like the elevation of the couple above all else really needs to be broken down and people need to learn how to divest from that and enter into a different paradigm in which each relationship is unique. Each relationship has its own, you know, dynamics and value and pieces that, that are special to it. So, so I think that's, one piece that I think is really important in order to make that happen successfully. The other piece that I think is really important is stepping away. This is, this is a hard um, concept for me to describe without doing it visually, but stepping away from triangulation, which is when there's, you know, a conflict between two people and one or the other or both pull in a third person to try to stabilize it. And so what this often looks like in triads or quads is if there's a conflict between two people, they may go to someone else and say, hey, I have a problem with so-and-so or I don't like the way they're treating me and I need you to be on my side about this. Instead of just going to the person directly and saying, hey, there's something going on between us. Can we talk? And so, you know, I I guess the shorthand way to say that would be like each relationship inside the quad or the triad is its own relationship is, you know, and so each relationship needs to be treated as its own, as well as the entire thing is its own relationship as well. Well, and I just want to quickly clarify because I know we have um, a bunch of little anxiety gremlins that follow us too, myself included. And I just want to make sure you guys all understand that what we're talking about when we say like going to somebody else we're not talking about like going for to someone and being like hey am i are my feelings okay like checking in with someone is not the same thing as like weaponizing someone against this other partner um i mean you know correct me correct me if i'm like off base heidi but like i've always i'm especially because of my impulsivity and you know as as everybody who follows us knows i have severe adhd so that comes with a litany of fun little side effects one of those being emotional dysregulation and the other being impulsivity and so it, it is very very common for me to go to a friend or somebody um 
outside of the relationship as a sort of objective third party and and just kind of checking in and being like am i off base or do i like need to you know do i need to chill what let me know yeah i think that's great clarification and um the way i kind of talk about this is like when you are going to an outside person are you venting to them and then never talking to the person who you have a problem with are you trying to like get them to like say like yeah you're right that person's a piece of shit and then that's the end of the conversation or are you bouncing ideas processing with the goal of then going to the person with whom you have the problem and being able to like talk to them directly and resolve it right it all comes down to like the intent behind why you're going to the third person so just just had to throw that in there because I know we have several people, myself included, that have to use that as a resource. So, yeah. And, and I would say that, um, being really careful about who that person is that you're using as a resource and is it someone who's already involved in the dynamic? Because if so, maybe that's not the person to go to in that particular scenario. Absolutely. So. Yeah. And that's a wonderful point because a lot of the unhealthy traits that I see in triads and quads and reasons they kind of implode are exactly what you mentioned, Heidi. It's folks that haven't um, really kind of learned how to have that direct conversation or conflict resolution with that particular partner or partners. And so they're kind of going around in a more passive aggressive manner. And this is one of the things that we talk about a lot if you are entering into the you know polyamory world or something like that you need to be supremely comfortable and confident not only with yourself but in your communication style if you have a negative or unhealthy communication style doing something like having a polyamorous relationship or definitely a triad or a quad relationship uh, it's just a recipe for disaster and i think just anecdotally that's what i see the most often in some of these quads is they don't have healthy communication styles between all of the parties involved. Maybe one or two do, but as a group or individuals, they're just kind of all running around the mill talking about each other, which is just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, I think that's so true. And and something I would add on is, you know, if folks are listening to this and thinking, well, how do I know if my skills are are up to muster? Snuff? What's the word? Up I said snuff, yeah. <laughs> Oh, how do I know if my skills are good enough? I'm just going to go with that and take out the fancy terms. Okay. So, you know, if you're listening and thinking, well, I don't know, I think I have okay skills, but I'm not sure if they're good enough or not. I would say the most important thing is to be able to own your mistakes. Um, you don't have to be perfect. You can, I make mistakes all the time. We all do. You can make mistakes. You can misstep, but can you own those? Can you, you know, own them non-defensively? Can you revisit the situation and say, hey, you know, I think I was unfair or I think I jumped to a conclusion or I didn't deal with that directly and I, I really should have. Let me try again. So perfection isn't required, but self-awareness, a willingness to hold yourself accountable and to correct when you misstep, I think are, are really important if, if you're ready to kind of enter this relationship model. Yeah, that's one of the things that we've talked about with uh, Mr. Mini Peaks here in our household, too, is like, you know, saying sorry after when you're constantly apologizing for the same mistake. I don't believe you anymore. Like our, our big lesson here in the house is don't be sorry. Fix it. You know, if you if you mistake, like I, I'm very much, you know, yay trauma. I'm very much one of those. I don't care what you say. If your actions aren't, your actions are going to show me what you really mean. And so that's something that we've like really tried to ingrain in mini peaks. And it's something that I know 
Tyr and I both hold very dear to us as far as like our sort of like moral compass, if you will. Yeah, when we're talking about polyamory, we're talking about like elite level relationship navigation. And so having those conversations, not only with your partners, but with yourself and being able to hold yourself accountable and hardwire some of those lessons and those changes that you're seeing, you know, when you get negative feedback or when you get uh, feedback that's harder to take is important. And it's one of those things I wished I would have learned as a child. Like I had to wait until my early 30s to start going to therapy to learn some of these coping mechanisms and actually, you know, take some of this feedback in and say, hey, maybe I need to look at how I'm navigating my life. Maybe I need to look at how I'm treating others. And going in with that mindset, as you mentioned, Heidi, is important, especially in these higher level, more complex relationships. Yeah. And something I like to um, bring in to drive that point home is I do a lot of self-disclosure in my polywobbles group with my participants. And I'll share stories of like, hey, I just made a mistake. Let me tell you about the mistake I made and how I realized it and the steps I've taken to, you know, make amends. And I just shared one a few weeks ago with my current Polywobbles group and was essentially like, hey, I just had jealousy get the better of me. Let me tell you all about it. I was out with a partner. She was talking about one of her new partners. And I was kind of like, noticing myself being a little harsh and critical about that new partner. And I went home and I was like, oh, that didn't feel good. Why did I do that? And I called that partner back up and was like, hey, I need to apologize. I was feeling a little jealous. And I was like, really critical of this other new partner of yours. And I don't know him. I, you know, I'd like to get to know him. But like, that was that wasn't really fair of me. I'm sorry. And, and I think it's so important to share my mistakes too, to show like, you don't have to be perfect. You can still experience jealousy and like, you can misstep, but can you own it? Can you like own it non-defensively? Can you make amends? And can you figure out, you know, have enough self-awareness to figure out what's going on and what steps you need to take to do better. I absolutely love that. And I really want to join this group now. And I love that you're able to have that sort of self-disclosure. Um, in, in different parts of my life, I teach you know professional growth and development and things like that. And I have a concept that I've worked into my own book on uh, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. And what you just gave there is a perfect example of that sort of radical transparency that's necessary, not only for our own self-actualization, but specifically when we're communicating with our partners. Well, and I think that ties also into like the idea of like radical self-acceptance too, of just like, you know, we all suck sometimes and that's okay. You know, as long as you can, you know, like Heidi said, own it, try your best to fix it. And then more importantly, try your best not to make that mistake again, or at the very least, maybe sort of recognize it when it does resurface and circumvent it a little better. You know, and those are all things that take practice. And that's something that I feel like a lot of people forget is the actual practice part of a lot of these, you know, especially the negative emotions and how we react to them is it's not going to work the first time that you realize that you're feeling icky again. You know, you may have to go back a couple of times, you know, it, you're going to go back a couple of times and it, it just, you have to be willing to try, I think is the main thing. And I think accept feedback too, you know, like I want my partners, like if I've shared like, hey, here's the thing I'm struggling with. I want them to be able to gently call me out and be like, hey, I think you're doing that thing again. And in my better moments when I'm regulated to be able to say like, ah, you're right. I am. Let me, let me take a step back or let me pause or can I try that again? 
And I think it's important to have partners that are able to gently hold you accountable and help you redirect. And that's difficult for all of us in the best case scenarios. But having a partner or partners that understand that, understand a person's propensity to kind of maybe go down those roads, either not hold themselves accountable or hold themselves way too accountable and help kind of like balance them out. Hey, it's not as bad as you think. Don't beat yourself up. Let's try this. I think that's a very healthy way to look at relationships. So then on that note, um, something that Tier and I were both kind of wondering is, you know, speaking of like having, you know, the, the call outs or whatever, what about those situations where there's sort of like a, a come to Jesus or an intervention sort of needed for everybody? Like, do you, is that the kind of situation where you would recommend maybe like a family session, like a family therapy session or a group session for polycules and then how would you recommend they go about finding a therapist or counselor or coach who is capable of handling that scenario in a proactive and healthy way that's such a great question and i think that if communication has broken down if there are some unhealthy dynamics in place if people feel stuck or gridlocked to borrow a gottman word um i think that family therapy can, I'm going to have some caveats here, so wait for them, but I think family therapy can be a great resource for working through that. And here's why family therapy is about systems. Family therapists learn systems work. So they view a family as a system with individual players that all impact one another and create a dynamic within the group. And so, and that's what's happening in polycules. It's a whole system. Any one person engaging in a certain behavior is going to affect everyone else in the system and it's going to create promote health or you know not health and you know that um there's dysfunction can really start to start to break down if all the systems in the player aren't all the players in the system aren't healthy and communicating with one another now time for the caveats so a lot of family therapy um training programs are not very good at talking about polyamory, about unpacking implicit bias, because I think um, a lot of the training programs have historically been incredibly biased and not only um, minimized, but actually pathologized non-monogamy historically. I think there are some out there that are working to amend that and I hope that they continue to do that work because of that systems training. I think family therapists are so uniquely qualified and equipped to help folks in polycules. Um, but that being said, I think if you do want to seek out a, a family therapist, it's really important to vet them and see, do they have experience with polyamory? Have they done any of their own work to unpack their bias? Um, have they done educational you know, trainings on it? Have they done readings? All of those things. That is a wonderful point. And I loved the caveats there. So quick story time, quick aside, as we've all said, 29 are very big fans of therapy. And right prior to us getting married, uh, we started seeing a couple's therapist. We weren't having any problems. We weren't having any issues. We just wanted to make sure we were not insane and that we were approaching, you know, blending our households in a healthy manner. And we were, you know, particularly looking for 
a therapist with experience with polyamorous couples, uh, as well as someone who had, you know, worked with kink or BDSM before, because that's a very also big part of our lifestyle. And, you know, somebody that had worked with any sort of ethical non-monogamous folks. And, you know, we're doing, because of COVID, uh, virtual therapy sessions. And so we put all this in our bio. Here's what we're looking for. And God love him, our therapist, he tried so hard. But we ended up spending half of our sessions educating him on what polyamory was. And then by the end of it, we would meet with him. And we're like, we don't actually have anything to talk about uh, because it was hard for him to relate. So I know that must be a challenge for others in the community, finding someone who understands not only the concepts and what it is, but how to approach it in a healthy way. And I just want to add a quick little note here, by the way, because this was something that it was one of those where like, in our situation, it wasn't a huge issue. We're very lucky that it wasn't a issue, an issue, but it could have been because in his little bio on the site, he specifically said that he had experience working with non-monogamy. And we were both, when we, when we mentioned it to him, he was like, huh? Like a dog with a whistle. Just what? You had no idea what any of this was. Again, you know, God's bless him. He was very sweet. He was very like, you know, validating. And, you know, like Tier mentioned, we were really mostly just going to like, are we insane? Are we like trauma bonding? What, what is happening? Cause it was a very quick courtship and marriage, you know? And, you know, again, he, he was, he was trying his best, but like, yeah, just a little disclaimer to any other therapists out there that are listening, please don't put down that you know and have experience with non-monogamy if you don't. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I've heard the story so many times. And I think that when well-intentioned therapists put that down, what they usually mean is that they are non-judgmental, that they are open, that they want to be, that they want to be accepting of different lifestyles and orientations and choices, which is necessary, but not sufficient to provide competent therapy to folks who are engaging in ethical non-monogamy. I think there's so much more that's involved. And I think folks maybe once, you know, that therapist saw the two of you probably realized, oops, my open-mindedness is not enough. I don't know these vocabulary words. I don't know these like social norms and standards that these folks are talking about. I am in over my head here. Yeah, he was very over, over way in over his head. It was actually really cute though. I had to, I had to have to give him credit. We we left one session and we had like gone over kind of like the basics of everything and what that meant for it. Because like the non-monogamy part, while it is very important and it is a major key to our relationship, we realized very early on that it wasn't going to be a, a sticking point for either of us in a negative way because ours coincide very well. But with that said, when we were talking to the therapist, it was hilarious because we did a session with him where we're talking about, you know, we're educating him on non-monogamy. And the next time we saw him, he was so like puppy proud because he's like, I learned these and these and these. And I looked into it and, and he was like show and tell. And it was just going, oh, sweetie. Oh, sweetie. Bless your little heart. Yes. <laughs> he tried. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll give him we'll give him some gold stars for trying. But I, I think that is, you know, a story I hear a lot. People end up um, educating their therapists, which, you know, if you don't mind doing that, fine. But I don't think we should have to do that as as clients and consumers of of mental health care. And the other piece that I think is really huge to be able to talk about is um, not just are folks educated, are the therapists educated around non-monogamy, but if they're not 
polyamorous themselves, have they done the work to unpack the monogamy bias that, you know, I'm not picking on therapists. We all have monogamy bias. We are raised with it. It is part of our culture. You know, from the time we are young, we learn you will find your one special person and you will love only them. And once you fall in love with them, everyone else will magically become unattractive to you. And this is the one person who the only one you'll want to be with. And, and if for some reason that's not the case, if you do find other people attractive, then something's probably wrong with that relationship. And so point being that that this is something that we all um, absorb throughout our life. And so therapists are not immune from this and they need to do their work to unpack that. And it's their responsibility to do that if they want to work with polyamorous folks. I used to give a training specifically for therapists on gaining polyamory competency. And some of the exercises we did were around unpacking implicit bias. And I remember most of the folks coming into the training were like, yeah, I work with polyamorous people. I feel like I'm you know, I got it. I'm pretty good at it. And once they did the implicit bias portion of the training, they were like, wow, wow. I had no idea how much I still carried around this. And it was, you know, I think it's really powerful and so important that, that folks unlearn it. Yeah. I got really lucky with my therapist that I had up in Memphis, like before moving down, um, because she, you know, I wasn't going to see her. I initially went to go see her for EMDR and, um, we started working together and then COVID. So we had to kind of tank or pause the more intense EMDR, but we were still doing a lot of the other like leg work. Right. Um, and it was so funny because at one point we did start talking about, you know, polyamory and why that's important to me and things like that. And, you know, one of your videos that I saw that I really enjoyed and related to was the one about like, is it an orientation or is it just, you know, whatever, or, you know, however you want to refer to it. And I was like, and I, I very much agreed with you about it being like a combination of like an orientation and a choice because like, again, I started very young, you know, but also like I've tried monogamy. It doesn't work for me. I, I could never be a one trick pony if I wanted to. Um, and so like it, it and the way I, I described it to her, it was like, it's not really like, I don't feel like it's an orientation per se. Like you know, we joke all the time that we're accidentally monogamous. Like, I don't have a problem with monogamy. I just, like, I know in my heart that, like, if that was the constraint on the relationship, as it has been in previous relationships, I would not be okay. I would I would very much have a problem with that. And I, I did have a problem with that. And it was sort of the downfall to other relationships I've been in. All right. So that was fantastic. Um, But... I do have to say, everybody, that we are running a little low on time right now, so I'm going to save the juiciest bits for our next episode, but before we let you guys go, Heidi, I did have one very quick little speed round question for you. Describe healthy poly or ethical non-monogamy in five words. Oh, this is such a challenge for me. I'm Being brief is not my strong suit, but I'm going to do my best here. Okay, how about um, consent, intention, self-awareness, that's two words, shit, and communication. I love it. We'll count it. We can count it as one. We'll count it as one. Yeah. It works. I love that. Yeah, the hyphen. Yeah. 
No, I, I, I love that answer. And and we actually, for part two, when, when you listeners come back, we have some more speed round questions. We got some in-depth ones too, but we like the fun ones. Um, but we are going to end here today. Heidi, thank you so much uh, for being on our podcast and for everybody that's still out there listening. Next week's episode, we will continue this conversation with Heidi. Be sure and go check out her website. She loves Radically. Uh, also the same name on TikTok. Uh, so yes, go follow her everywhere. Instagram, TikTok, her website. She's fantastic. So as always, twin, my love, I will let you start our goodbye message. All right, everyone, you know the deal. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. Give yourself grace, love, and patience. And as always, go out and do some dope shit. Goodbye. Thank you.